Hello and welcome to Planning People, the anime podcast. This week the episode takes an unusual turn away from our normal format to discuss something of unique severity in the finance world, whistleblowing. You might be aware that this year we've spent a fair bit of time at NMA discussing the importance of mental health and well-being in asset management and finance more generally. But we'd like to combine that with a podcast that we did last year about whistleblowing featuring George Patelis, who joins myself and Jack Gilbert, our chief reporter today, to discuss uh, the goings-on inside the FCA. Um, today we're joined by both of them. George, thank you so much for being with us. Um, for listeners at home, could you just introduce yourself on a very basic level and say uh, how you first came to be involved in a whistleblowing case and what your role was in highlighting your concerns? Sure. Thank, thanks for having me, by the way. Um, yeah, my name is George Patelis. I was chief executive of a company called Tayuda, and um, I had uncovered a, uh, a, a significant black hole in the accounts that, that turned out to be the misappropriation of funds. Um, I took those concerns, as was my duty as chief exec, to the FSA, who uh, at the time the FSA, now the FCA, and um, that just sort of started a um, very long process of back and forth with uh, the FCA, um, which kind of takes us to where we are now, which the story is not yet completed. Mm, interesting. Um, the last time you joined us on this podcast, uh, you described that story in much more depth. So for listeners at home, if you want the sort of full context, please do listen to that. Um, but today, I think I'd like to go into a lot more detail about what it was like trying to get the regulator to act when things went drastically wrong and, and indeed the impact on you. So, but before we do that, could you just tell us, you know, what the latest news is on the case and perhaps what's happened since uh, you last came into the studio to discuss it? Sure. Um, I, I believe when I came in the last time, the the investors hadn't received their their money back. I, I believe they they have now, or the majority of them have received their money back uh, with with a marginal amount of interest. Um, the FCA has selected uh, an investigator to investigate the the whole Tayuda Conet uh, asset management um, fiasco. Uh, there's been a new APPG formed, which I, I believe kicks off after the summer recess. Uh, and that, I think those are probably the most significant things at this point. Mm. Jack, when did you first sort of get wind of this as a story and, <laughs> and what's been your journey reporting? Uh, on the well, George? so thanks, Ollie. Um, so, yeah, my, my, uh, I first got wind of the story when someone... I'll not say who, I, don't even, I can't even remember who it was. Someone sent me the... Um, the apology letter that was sent to George uh, in this is the summer of 2016 when the FCA partially admitted fault for the handling in your case George that's right and they offered you 500 pounds I believe that's correct recom recompense um, which was obviously not a very large amount uh, and we did a short story on that in the summer of 2016 and then George, you then contacted me. I think on the back of that story. I think that's right. And yes. then, and then we had our kind of relationship went from there. Um, but obviously, it's been interesting from from my perspective, um, seeing how the story develops. Um, the the kind of, I mean, the, the complaints commissioner report, which came out at the end of 2016, um, was was a pretty big moment in it in terms of, you know, just outlining all the failings of the FCA. In, in the Connaught case 
and ordering it to issue George with a public apology, um, which they decided against and issued him instead with a private apology, um, which didn't name him personally as well. Is that correct? Yeah, they they didn't name me personally and they didn't name the sort of Tayuda Khanid. I think they they used the complaints commissioner's sort of reference number um, and that was it. Yeah, so it didn't mention the, the, the companies involved or uh, my name. There's a lot to come on to here about, you know, the regulators' supposed failings and, and I think your perspective, George, on... Uh, in an ideal world, how the regulator should behave when it comes to whistleblowers. But just before we get on to that, you said in in your briefing to us that, you know, you've achieved effectively one of the three things that, you know, you had ordered up and prioritised, namely the sorting out of investors' money. Yes. What are the other two things and, and, and where are we at with those two bits? Well, yeah, I mean, my, the, my priorities... Uh you know, rightly or wrongly had, had always been, I wanted to do whatever I could to ensure that the investors receive their money back or, or as much of their money back as, as possible. Um, I wanted to play my part in um, making sure that justice was, was carried out on, on the perpetrators. Um, and then I wanted to get my life back in order, uh, you know, both professionally and personally. Um, the, the first goal w- was achieved. Um, and, uh, the second one, uh, to, to my knowledge, uh, nothing's happened. There's been no criminal proceedings against the, the perpetrators. And, um, I think I'm making progress on, uh, getting my, uh, my life, uh, back in order. Mm. But we're, we're, where are we on the timeline? We are knocking on the door of nine years. You've been involved incredibly, in incredibly, yeah. I mean, nine January will be nine years uh, since I when I first notified the uh, then FSA of a of a principal eleven um, issue within the company that I was chief exec of. Mm. What were your expectations when you initially decided to go to the F- FSA as I, it then was? Well, I think there's a couple things because um, it 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 wasn't. It wasn't just uh, that I told them that, you know, I think there's a problem. Um, I supplied them with with evidence that was crystal clear as to to what was going on. And um, my expectations at that point were that they would be in there um, possibly with the uh, SFO and that it would be sort of shut down and stopped in, in a matter of days. And that was not to be the case, was it? Definitely not. Um, it it just um, there there was effectively no action taken. Um, I you know there might have been I'm, I'm sure there were a few things that were going on on behind the scenes, but um, everything that was going on behind the scenes just had the effect of worsening the the position and and the problem continued unabated for you know another 15 months or so yeah. i think and in that time what 75 million was that roughly happened? yeah i think you know when i when i first went to the uh, fsa um i was i could prove that there was about 20 million that was gone um i was confident there was there was more than that but i i had evidence of 20 million and then um after i went in to see the f uh, the FSA um, and provided them with evidence, um, and until the company uh, went into administration, it was another 74, 75 million that was invested. Mm. Well, this is a bit of a side question, but we obviously talk about the FSA and the FCA as it now is. 
Was there any uh, delay or complication uh, involved simply because of the regulator's transformation from one body to another? I mean, I know it was you know a change in all but name, effectively, but um, was there any kind of problem built into that? Do you think? I, I don't believe so. The they were all the same people. Okay. Um, despite that, that was uh, one of the areas that has has bothered me considerably. Um, in my dealings with with the FCA, is they they continually refer to the issues, uh, many of the issues relating to me as their predecessor. Yeah. Uh, you know the FSA, and I, you know that's just that's nonsense. I think that's just a, that's a terrible excuse. They're sort of mm. pinning it on. They're the same people. Yeah. I mean, they're effectively the same people. So you're in mind in your mind, there is no excuse for them. Absolutely to say. none. The same people. They just have a different business card. What is the primary uh, point of contact for a chief executive of a company like that when it comes to whistleblowing? Who, who in the management or uh, leadership chain at the regulator at the time were you actually dealing with in in the first place? That that's a good question. Um, my my initial phone call was into. Uh, I don't even know what what the name of the department was, but there's a number that you could call to raise a, a principal eleven concern, um, which is which is what I did. Um, I went through all that. I was asked to to email them what I had just told them over the phone. I had offered to to come in and meet with them to tell them what was going on. They they said that wasn't necessary, and then I think it was maybe a month later. Uh, sometime towards the end of February 2011, um, I, I went in to uh, see, uh, I, I'm not even sure what their titles were, but I, I, I should know it, but the, these were the, the, they were, I guess, pegged to meet with me. There, there were a couple of guys in the room, and I was there for probably five or six hours, and um, that was really the last time um, I brought evidence with me, which which they they didn't take, uh, despite asking me to bring it. Um, I subsequently sent them um, a lot of evidence, and I, I never heard back from them again until the the sort of complaints process started, which I believe was almost four years later. And mm. um, looking at this from a kind of idealist perspective, how do you expect the regulator? To behave like what what could it have done differently and what should its best practice be it could have done a lot of things differently i think in this case yeah i mean listen i i've 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 said this so many times since since this happened that um there almost needs to be some sort of distinction um based on who within a firm is is blowing the whistle and you know, determining whether it's a disgruntled employee um, yeah. or, you know, that's something more significant than that. And, and my argument has always been that, you know, I walked in as chief exec of a company and I was effectively blowing the whistle on my own company. Um, and if, if, if that's not enough to scare the shit out of them, I, I don't, sorry, I don't, I don't know what, I don't know, I don't know what else is. Um, um, you know, I asked them under the um, uh, Freedom of Information Act to provide me with the number of chief execs who have ever blown the whistle on their own company, and they, they said they were unable to do that. But uh, my guess is it's not very many. Yeah, I think it's an interesting point, actually, because I do think 
the FCA does get a lot of um, whistleblowers calling in. But I think I I would imagine that a large percentage of those are, as you say, disgruntled employees. Um, and I, I think they, there are some some cases where people are a bit deluded or, or you know, uh, you know, not... Conspiracy theory. Yeah, exactly. And, and, the, and these people are gem- uh, uh, not the CEOs of fairly large companies. With insider information. They, they are. And, and I think it's being able to distinguish from, from, from those whistleblowing intelligence sources that the FCA well, gets. Uh, yeah, I couldn't agree more. The, the, you, you almost have to look at... If, you can make, forget about the position if, if, if that's not the most relevant, but they could certainly have looked at my history with them. I'd been an authorized person for many years, um, held several um, uh, authorizations, CF1, CF3, CF8. There had never been an issue. So you've got that, and then you also have mounds of evidence. Uh, so I, I, don't, I don't know that the fact that um, being the chief exec of the business or, or my history um, as an authorized person um, really sort of came into it because, I mean, they still had the evidence. If I was, you know, a, a very junior employee who brought that in, I would have thought just on the evidence alone they would have acted accordingly. Yeah, sure. Um, and one of, the, so one of the key issues here is that you, you weren't treated as a whistleblower. Uh, and and I think if I'm correct from our sort of prior conversation, the the wording used specifically by the regulator was that you you know you were a person with information. Well, yeah, I mean that that only really came to light, you know, a few years later um, because I I sort of reengaged because the FCA used to publish a uh, Q and A for investors or I guess anybody else that was interested in what was happening with it and then one of the questions on the Q&A related specifically to me and it was you know did you meet with the chief exec George Patelis and didn't he turn over evidence and Mm. uh, their their answer to that was that that they did meet with me and um, we we informed uh, you know Mr. Patelis that we weren't the investigative uh, authority Um, and then they went on to say uh, but you know hey we don't know what he did you know he could have gone to the police on his own he could have done this sure. and that's that's what really got me re-engaged in it because um a, as a whistleblower the fca um, are required to follow a certain protocol and that protocol very basically is that if they aren't the investigative authority they're duty bound to say you need to go see the guy down the hall he's the one that that we'll deal with this. Well, they never did that. And when I questioned them on that, their response was, well, we didn't, you, we didn't consider you a whistleblower. Yeah. We considered you a senior executive who was providing information. So that, that's what really started to, you know, get me reengaged that they were effectively pointing the finger uh, at me that, you know, Hey, if George had only done more than you know, maybe this, this could have been avoided. Um, and th- this is also um, despite multiple letters from the FCA to me, to members of parliament, and, and recently in the announcement that the investigation uh, is about to start, that they refer to me as a whistleblower. So some parts of the FCA say I'm, an inv- I am a senior executive who provided intelligence, then there's others that refer to me as a whistleblower. Yeah. So. Um, 
I'm keen to just come back to the consumer angle for a second because uh, as Jack and I and indeed yourself are well aware, you know, the FCA does have a sort of communication machine to publish uh, its concerns about specific firms. But in your view, George, the uh, the system that was in operation and dealing with this case was, was wholly inadequate, wasn't it? The times That's when right. it raised its concerns seemed to almost downplay uh, the problems that you you know as a point of fact were endemic to the company and, and were putting consumers at risk. Yeah, quite right. I mean, I, I there were several things that, that happened. So the if you kind of go back to the timeline and in February of 2011 is when I provided uh, stacks of evidence to them. Um, nothing happened until May. Uh, in May of 2011, they they issued a, a, a public announcement that, that effectively said, uh, you know, investors in, in uh, Conit, um, it, was, it was promoted as low risk, and um, guaranteed returns and so on and so forth and, and equated it to putting your money into a, a savings account in a bank. They, they said that they believe that that was misleading and that, the, um, that it wasn't as safe as a, a bank account. So just I think that on its own is, is pretty staggering considering what they knew. I mean, that what they knew was taking place um, that I gave them and certain things that I didn't know at the time that I found out over the past couple years that sort of took place in, in a gap of, you know, February from when I went in until they announced that, that the practice of, of uh, misappropriating funds was continuing. Um, so that, that was the first thing that they did. The second thing that they did was they, they revoked Toyota's regulated lending license, which effectively meant that, that Taita could no longer write regulated loans. Um, that was in, was that September? Yeah, you know, Jack, I don't have... Um, I think it might have been September 2011. It, 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 that sounds about right. I mean, it would have been several months later. Um, so they revoked their license and, and said they could no longer make regulated loans. And that's significant because the type of lending that the company did was they did regulated loans and they did unregulated loans, meaning the FCA were responsible for oversight on the regulated loans, but not on the unregulated loans. So they revoked them because that was under their uh, remit. But they didn't announce that. That was that was a change of permission on Toyota's FCA page that would have from the FCA's homepage would have sort of taken six clicks to see that, no announcement. Um, and and further to that point, Toyota then went in the press and said that they had um, decided to pull out of the regulated lending market and just focus on unregulated loans. So almost, you know, trying to put a positive spin on it, which, which probably would have, would have had that effect. So do you feel that prolonged the crisis because absolutely. it gave them the, the leg room to continue? Well, it certainly did. If, if the announcement, you know, the, the initial announcement about it not being as safe as a bank account was, you know, just unbelievably um, weak. Uh, the second announcement, had they actually put that in the press uh, as they did the first one, um, I think investors would have said, okay, well, we, we just had an announcement a couple months ago that, it, that it's riskier than we thought. 
they've also just revoked their regulated lending license. There may, there's got to be some problems there. Yeah, sure. Um, and then the other permission that they amended was they added a, a, a permission to, I'm not sure if it's added a permission or a requirement, I'm sorry, that when Toyota received redemption money on a loan, so effectively when a loan paid off, that they had to return that money to the entity that funded it. Um, that also was not announced. And, and clearly, just by the wording of that, that, that they're telling they have to do that, uh, suggests that they weren't doing that. So had they made a stronger warning initially in May, had they announced in um, that, that they revoked Tritus regulated lending license, and had they said in a public announcement that they needed to return the redemption money, there's just no way um, investors would have continued to put the money in there. Just, it's just absolutely not possible. Jack, knowing from our sort of experience of dealing with the FCA on a kind of press and communications level, we know that you know, it, it can be rightly reticent uh, in talking about certain things because of market sensitivities. I mean, everyone is well aware in the journalism industry of the closed book scandal and the way in which the FCA's handling of that, you know, led to market shifts in the insurance sector. What do you think led the regulator to be so reticent about communicating the true extent of it, of the problems that were going on? That's a good question, Ollie. I, I, I'm not sure. I think that there's... There's a few things going on here. I mean, I think I'm looking at the uh, the notice which the FCA put out about Connaught's warning that the money wasn't as safe as being in a bank account. You know, when whenever we as journalists see a notice from the FCA which says something along those lines, warning about a firm, uh, inherently we know that something very, very bad is going on with that firm. We know it's a sign that behind the scenes there's been issues and there's cons great concern from the regulator and from uh, and, you, and the public should be concerned about this investment i think the the issue is when uh, the, the member of the general public looks at one of those warning signs particularly looking at the one that they issued about connaught in may 2011 it didn't look that worrying it looked a bit like well you might want to just check this guy's speak to your advisor because um the money isn't as safe as it being in the bank account yeah you know, you, even someone might look at that and think, oh, there's not actually nothing to really worry about here. They're not saying it's too concerning. So I think there's different things going on here without knowing, as we do, that the that behind the scenes with those warnings the FCA put out, almost always there's a big worry from the FCA and almost always bad things happen when those warnings are put out. Yeah. And I think, I think there was a big lag as well. I mean, I think there was a, lo a long delay from when you, George, went in to see them in, in January or picked up the phone in January 2011, had the meeting in February, obviously the notice in May, permission restriction some point later, and then eventually the company was, was wound down a year later. Uh, there was, you know, a long period of delay there. And, you know, I think it's fair to say that things should have moved on a lot quicker. Yeah. George, what's your perspective on that? I mean, why, I, why the long timeline? Listen, Workload? I, that, Negligence? Um, that's that's one of the biggest questions that I've really never been able to to come up with a, with an answer because mm. there was just there was so much uh, compelling uh, evidence and so much uh, at stake if if they got it wrong and um, you know the, the the best that I could come up with is that 
that they either didn't believe me despite the evidence and that, that they would have had some meetings with, with the guys that were involved. Um, and you know, they, they probably, you know, said some bad things about me, which they, they clearly did, um, not in the press and, and, and other places. But I, I think that for whatever reason, the FCA bought what they were saying. And, um, there, there kind of came a point where, they must have said that, you know, that George was right and, you know, we, we didn't do anything. And I, I you know, I've never kind of gone back and, and done a, a timeline of this. But if if uh, if you if you did that, I think you would see that once things got really bad, everything turned to blaming the IFAs. That that was it. It wasn't mm -hmm. uh, these guys weren't doing anything wrong. It was a it was a massive uh, mis-selling scandal by by the uh, IFAs and and that was it. They they put all the blame uh, on the IFAs and, and me um, yeah. that we should have done more and that uh, it, it, it's disgusting what they did to, to, to the IFAs. They they knew that this had nothing to do with a a chronic uh, IFA mis-selling scandal it's just absolutely nothing to do that i'm not suggesting that there weren't people that that you know may have been missold um but that wasn't the reason there were losses the reason there were losses was people were stealing the money and the fca knew that um so they 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 sort of stayed on that argument um for for a long time and you know it's interesting if you if you read the the capita sanction document that the FCA put out when 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 they they hit capital with the 66 million uh, penalty or fine you, you could read that sort of 50 60 pages you won't see any reference to IFA mis-selling in that document the, yeah with that I mean with that document the FCA were, were kind of saying this is capital's fault it was ca and capital yeah. for background capital with the authorized corporate authorized um uh the authorized corporate the ACD, which is the, they, they were the um, the regulated the, the regulated That's party right. in the Connaught Fund, um, and all that only happened what in 2010 they became the ACD. I, th I I think they resigned around that point. So they think, resigned in 2010, and then then Bluegate took over. That, yeah, that's right. So, um, but no, there there was there was sort of no mention in that. And I mean, the other interesting part of that document is that many of the um, the reasons that they justified the fine um, were the very reasons that or part of the the evidence that I gave them, uh, the FCA, about what was going on. And, um, you know, it's interesting to note that that I don't remember the exact percentage, but I, I believe it was somewhere in the region of 25 million or so. We, we talked about this earlier, but the majority of the funds that were invested were, were long after capita and, and after um, I gave evidence to the FCA. So the very things that they were critical about Capita's um, oversight, um, they did the very same thing with, with much more evidence than Capita ever had. Yeah. Um, George, we understand that this period of your life, you know, as I said earlier, knocking on the door of nine years has, has created a quite considerable sort of turmoil for you on, on a number of levels. I mean, could you, with go, you know, going into the level of detail that you personally feel comfortable with, could you explain a little bit for our listeners about the impact that this process has had on you as an individual and your health and well-being? Yeah. 
Um, well, it, it's not it's not something anybody ever wants. You don't want to be a whistleblower. It's uh, you're in a fraternity that nobody wants to be in, and um, it's it took a tremendous toll on my personal life, uh, professionally, um, in, in ab- absolutely every aspect. I mean, I, I made a decision that I was going to see everything through and um, come, come hell or high water, I, I was going to do that because I knew, I knew that I was right. Um, I, there, there was no doubt in my mind that, mm. that I was right. And um, I, I, I believe that it would um, come out much sooner than, than it did. But there would just constantly be new things that would, would happen that would kind of get in, in the way of the, the truth coming out. And there might be more things that were said about me, sort of blaming me for, for things and where the FCA would see things in the press that they knew absolutely knew or were untrue about me mm. um and it just you just sort of go into a uh, spiral and um you know I, ne- I neglected my my wife and my kids my brothers i was a terrible friend and you know th- this this went on for for a long time and um but i i just couldn't sort of see through it and again my my decision so- something you, you you can't go through something like this without having it affect something so you you either you know you either are all in to to do the right thing um which you believe is the right thing and your your family life's going to suffer um or you say screw it i've done everything that i could do and then you just sort of pack your bags and and um and go home and um you know maybe that was something that I, I could have done, but, um, you know, I, I believed, um, and, and frankly still believe that, you know, I was, I was critical in the investors getting their money back. Yeah, sure. Do you think the regulator is fully cognizant still of the impact that its work can have, you know, at a high level working with chief executives or indeed anyone else, uh, when it comes to this sort of thing? Yeah. I mean, do they understand, cause obviously, you know, you've just said how, the, the toll being a whistleblower has and that no one wants to be a whistleblower. I mean, do you think in your interaction with the FCA that they were aware of that? Uh, well, no. I mean, remember, I, I went in and, you know, when I met with them in February of 2011, I had no contact. There was there there was never any uh, contact with the FCA getting in touch with me and saying, look, you, you told us that, this was going on, but they're telling us this is going on. You know, th- there was never any any kind of contact back, even to verify, you know, factual documents. So they didn't do that. They they certainly weren't checking to see, you know, how George Patelis was doing. I mean, I just I think that they 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 probably up until 2015. Um, they were probably happy that they just weren't hearing from me. Um, yeah. And then, again, it, it really all started with that that Q&A where they said that effectively that I should have done more. Um, and then they said I wasn't a whistleblower. That That's what just sort of, you know, reignited everything. Mm-hmm. I mean, I was still trying to do things behind the scenes with, like, the uh, – the members of the Conduct Action Group and some uh, the APPG, I think, had, had formed. Um, 
I don't know, maybe 2013. Mm. Um, so I was involved in that. But um, as far as any interaction with the FCA, there, there was none, and there, there hasn't been any. No. I mean, there's, there's, been, there's been absolutely no interaction other than, you know, some back and forth on uh, the complaint, which ultimately had to be adjudicated by the complaints commissioner. So th there's never, yeah. you know, come in and have a cup of coffee and to see how, how did this thing go so horribly wrong. I mean, that, that never that never came into it. Can I just flip the coin here a second? Because I think we're sitting here discussing this with you, George, as someone who essentially put your whole life and your whole sort of existence on the line to try and do the right thing. And um, But it strikes me that the, the regulator also has interactions with people who do the wrong thing. So, you know, directors get banned. Uh, people, are, you know, people are not allowed to trade because of insider trading scandals. Um, all of that involves sort of high-level regulatory work involving the FCA's lawyers. And I, I imagine that that too, if you are the person on the wrong end of the regulator's sort of disciplinary stick, that that can be incredibly stressful as well. Do you think that for those people who end up on the wrong side of the FCA's rule book, that the FCA still has a kind of duty of care to those people as well? Uh, you know, I've never thought of that. Um, you know, I, I guess it depends on, you know, what, what's happened and if it's something that, that there's, you know, uh, an, you know, an opportunity for, for, you know, rehabilitation. Um, you know, I, I know that, that they, I, I, they seem to be happy to just sort of park things and, and sort of, you know, kick the can down the road a little bit and, and hope it goes away. I just don't, I just don't think that they, that they deal with it. And, you know, the sanctions, I'll put it to you this way. If, if I had gone in there as a chief exec and I made up all this stuff, um, I, I would have been all at the front page of the newspapers and yeah. this happened. I would have been lying boss for, given you know, it, jail. It, it would have been, you know, game over. Um, but if, if you look at the, you know, kind of what's happened to at least the, you know, a couple of the guys that were involved in the misappropriation of funds, uh, nothing's happened to, I mean, they, they, one was banned as a director for five years, the other for seven. Mm. That's it. Do you think they've gone through the same level of personal toilet turmoil that you have? I mean, that's uh, a very personal well, question. I mean, yeah, I don't, um, <laughs> I, I would imagine they've had um many sleepless nights um but i you know it it's probably different i mean I, I i can at least go to bed at night knowing that i did the right thing yeah uh, presumably if they have a conscience they go to bed at night knowing that they screwed a bunch of people and you know cap it about them out you know i, I don't know how else to say it because to the best of my knowledge nothing has happened to them personally other than being banned as a director well you know, if, if over a hundred million's gone and, you know, I'm, I'm not, I don't know exactly what happened to it, but it's pretty clear the, the people who were responsible for it being gone, you know, that, that's not too severe. Um, this might seem like a relatively whimsical point, given the gravity of the things that, you know, you've discussed, practically speaking, but it strikes me that in this country, uh, you know, in the key public services on offer, there are, there are now, you know, all sorts of teams that deal with things like distress and well-being in the public sector for people who encounter it. You know, if, yeah. you, if you're criminal and you're locked up uh, for brawling on a Saturday night, you know, the police have a duty of care to you. Yeah. Uh, that's very, and that's, you know, that's very, very important. Um, is, there, is there any space, do you think, inside the regulator for the kind of, 
I'm not saying sort of family liaison officers or anything like that, yeah. but the kind of, you know, the well-being officers that are there to deal with whistleblowers and make sure that in that moment of absolute isolation and potentially despair, um, yeah. that they're actually looked after and that they have a liaison point that is official and um, uh, regulatable in itself. Yeah. That, that, that's a good point. Um, it, it is. It, it takes a tremendous toll, obviously, and um, I, I can I can tell you that that I, I had to seek medical help to to, to get through it. Mm. Um, I think the challenge the, the the challenge with having that as something that the FCA offer through um, you know maybe a third party mm. would would be how confident you were as a whistleblower that that they were actually independent that there was no way that right. you know what you what you shared with a i don't know it's almost like a grief counselor what you shared with a grief counselor um wasn't somehow going to find its way back um, yeah. to the fca and, and potentially work against you that that would be my concern interesting and i guess the same sorts of conflicts of interest that might govern any other kind of offshoot of a public body you know sure. you you couldn't be liaison liaising with someone i don't know related to someone with invest you know investments that have been affected by the case yeah and, and that's, right. That. that's right really really interesting jack any more for any more is there anything that you want to add or throw in here no 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 uh, I, I mean i think um i would say that i think <laughs> over the last few years and since i've, I've known you george i think it's it's it has surprised me uh the fca have surprised me in, in certain things they've done you know i think when the complaints commission issued their report which was very damning of the fca and it's the way that it's handled connell it said two things it said we recommend the that there, there's an independent review of um of your handling of the connell case and also that you issued george patelis with a public apology and when the fca well, they they agreed to do the, the third party review. Although, as George said, initially they wanted that to be an internal well, review. Yeah, they wanted it to be internal. I was the one that and, said and, for and, it to have any and value. And it was under your um, your uh, opinion that they eventually agreed to a third party review. And but the fact they didn't issue the public apology, I thought, was uh, very surprising and showed a, a high level of defensiveness on the part of the regulator. And I think you know when I. We had a meeting with the complaints commissioner in Parliament. Uh, in that would have been twenty seventeen, maybe. Probably it was not long after the complaints yeah. commissioner report was issued, yeah. and, I, and Anthony Townsend. And I asked him. I said, "You know, do you think the way that the FCA have treated George has is detrimental to whistleblowers generally coming forward to the FCA mm. to saying, you know, is has it shown a good example for other whistleblowers to come forward?" Um, and I think he, he kind of gave a fairly political answer and just said, I, I hope, I hope not. I hope that this hasn't discouraged other whistleblowers coming forward. Yeah. Yeah. Well, yeah, I, I've been asked that question before. If, if somebody came to me and said, look, I've uncovered something and I, I need to blow the whistle, like, what would I say to them? Um, and my answer is follow your duties. You know, you need to, if you need to report something, report it. And that's it. You know, if you're asked to do more, then you decide whether you want to do it. But but don't let it take control of your life like it it, it did to mine. And um, you know, at the end of it, um, 
you know, I, again, I can look myself in the mirror. Um, it's a lot harder to look my wife and kids in the eyes and try to justify some of the things that took place over the last eight years. That Those are things I'll absolutely never get back. So, um, you know, on one hand, uh, you know, I get a pat on the back for helping the people get their money. And then on the other side, it's like, well, that's great. But look, look at all the carnage that that's caused. So I'm not sure on balance is worth it or not. Mm. A final question um, just before we close, George. I mean, I'm really struck by how lonely you describe being, uh, you know, a whistleblower. I just wondered, have you, you, have you ever uh, communicated or have, had any sort of dealings with other high-level whistleblowers within firms? Uh, several. Um, th- that's an interesting point. Um, I've been contacted by, I'd, I'd say, since it became public who I was and, and, and what I did, uh, half a dozen, I've probably met personally with, with four of them and virtually every story is, is similar to mine, maybe not quite as, as bad as mine. Um, and the, the, the scale that they dealt with were, was, was not as uh, significant as mine. And are they all UK based or some around the they world? They were, uh, one guy in the States and the rest were all, all in the UK. Yeah. I've been asked to participate in, uh, you know, whistleblowing forums and, um, speak at ethics classes at, uh, London school of economics. I, I haven't done any of those cause I, I, I don't know. I just don't want that to sort of define uh, who I who I am. So, uh, but yeah, there's plenty. My my story is 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 not unique. I mean, it's it was devastating to me. Um, but you know, there, there's plenty of people who have gone through very similar things that, that have had you know worse outcomes. I mean, there's I've I've read plenty of things that you know whistleblowers taking their own lives and and stuff. So it, it's it's you know it's just not a good thing yeah dark stuff um george thank you so much for coming in again today to discuss the case Uh, and thanks jack for joining us as well um the work you've done on this is really really impressive um a a very great privilege if i may say so to speak to someone so openly about this sort of thing it can be difficult to have an on-the-record conversation um we have contacted the fca for comment about this case so that they do have a right to reply uh, and you'll hear what they had to say at the end of this recording i'm afraid that we have uh, just about all, all all about run out of time but um before we go i should mention that you can subscribe to this podcast on itunes and if you do like it you can leave us a good review please do that um the only thing left to say is that you have if you have an experience of whistleblowing or dealing with the regulator uh, on this sort of thing uh, do get in touch with us if you'd like to at news at citywire.co.uk we would be very happy to speak to you off the record or anonymously if you wish so until next time thanks for listening and goodbye well as you won't be surprised to hear we did contact the fca to ask for their perspective and comment on this story and indeed george's experience but it declined to comment on the case at the time of recording if that changes we will of course include their contribution in this episode retrospectively (laughs) 